Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you, Pastor Agent, for such a kind introduction. And as you're just looking outside, February is not of my favorite months, even though it was this month, over 20-something years ago, I can't even remember how long ago I came to this country, and it looked exactly like today. Maybe it was a little bit colder, but just as I came, you know, at the end of February, just a few months later, one of the most memorable moments that happened in my life, when, you know, we got married on June 1st. And probably when you go in your mind and you try to remember some, the most joyous moment in your life that happened in your life, probably attending weddings is one kind of memories that you retain. You know, and usually people are very merry, very happy when they participate. You know, probably some weddings that you participate are very good, very nice. Others maybe not so nice. Something that I remember during my wedding, and I'll never forget about it. I just came here in February. I didn't know any English, so I didn't learn much in my few months being here. And during the wedding ceremony, there was a minister. So he asked her questions, like, you know, if I can speak English, I said, then not much. So my best man, he knew English, I would say, very well. And my wife knew English to the degree that she could understand what he was saying. So what he did... I could never forget to this day. He said that he asked my wife to do the vows in Ukrainian language. And for me, I didn't know any English. He asked me to do it in English. So I just have to repeat all these words in English after my past man translated for me. So that was very difficult. And, you know, and just a few months later, I just realized I, will, I always make a joke to my wife. I said, you know, honey, I don't think I was legally married. Because I'm not fully aware of what I was saying back then. <laughs> so, we all have a great memories, right? About weddings. But throughout the Bible, and especially, it's not just Old Testament, especially throughout the New Testament, God uses the analogy of bride and groom to describe the relationship, the love that exists between Jesus and his church. And Jesus Christ is the kind of a groom that he pledged enormous love for his church, for all of us. And he committed. He committed 100% that he will come back for us and he will take us. And it's not just that. He will come back and he will give us eternal life. And, you know, there are many scriptures in the New Testament that relate to wedding. And just because we live in a different culture, like, you know, Canadian culture, there are so many different cultures mixed together. And let's say going from an Indian wedding to a Polish wedding, you can experience totally different events. But being a Christian and fully understand what Jesus taught in the New Testament is good and revisit the Jewish custom during the Jewish wedding. And, you know, as I was doing the research and, you know, come across so many wonderful scriptures that describe the wedding. And I was working for a slides to make my presentation a little bit easier for you. But, you know, we apologize. We don't have the TV. We don't have the equipment today to show you. 
So it'll be a little bit more challenging, but, you know, we'll be able to do it. And as I work, as Daniel helping, he was helping with the slides. When you go through all the stages through the Jewish marriage, at one time he just looked at me, he put a big smile and says, Wow, now I get it what you're going with it. So that's how amazing it is when you study the, the, the Jewish wedding. So basically the Jewish wedding, you know, it's composed of three elements. It's more than that, but just basically three elements. So it's just a contract, consummation, and celebration. Two big three C's. Contract, consummation, and celebration. And I was doing research, you know, there are many stages. You know, some people came with ten stages, some people come with six, three, four. I just narrowed it down just to make basic five stages of the Jewish wedding, right? So it starts with the step number one in all Jewish wedding, which we call the arrangement of marriage. So in the Old Testament, and back then at the beginning when Jesus Christ was walking on this earth, most of the marriage happened by arrangement. So it was basically a matchmaking process. The father of the future groom, or of a boy, would just look for a girl that would suit him, and he would approach the father of the future bride, and they would negotiate. Just, you know, asking, negotiate all kinds of different things that we'll later put in our, into a contract. And in many cases, the young men and the young women, many cases, not all of the cases, many cases, they didn't, they didn't even see each other till the later stages of the Jewish wedding ceremony. And, uh, but there is also some cases that, you know, young man was walking by, he went to the town, he went by the fields, and he saw a beautiful woman. He came back home and says, Father, I think I know there is a woman I love. And he would talk to his father and says, can you do something? Can we do something here? Can we make some things happen and, you know, start the arrangement process? So that was the first process that happened, the arrangement of marriage. And during all this stuff, you know, they put together a contract in Hebrew with God, what would be called Ketubah, K-E-T-U-B-A-H. And it was amazing how detailed contract it was. It included everything. You know, the, the, the sum of money that the men had paid for the bride, all the dowry was also included there. The wedding costs, even some of the contracts were specific as to so many wedding guests would be included in all of this. And even more than that, in this contract also were specific points what happened if the marriage is not going to work. Let's say if the husband will decide to get another wife, how much is going to cost him to pay to the father and to, the, and to, to his wife? And as I did the research, around the first centuries, you know, A.D., most of the Jewish marriage... They were not living in a polygamous relationship. Almost 90% was just a single man and woman marriage. Because nobody could afford, nobody wanted to take the chance, you know, to have all this difficulty that is described in the Old Testament. So everything was basically in this contract. And that was amazing. Everything was signed exactly, all the details in this contract. And many times... At the end of the contract, when the young people get to see each other, when basically all the main points when agreed by both parties, the bride-to-be was to call, and she had kind of like a final say if she approves, if she wants to get married, or if she doesn't want to get married. If she said no, she would just walk away, and everything will be called off. 
So that was the first stage, the preparation period. Let's go to the second stage. I'll give you the, just first I will just give you the quick summary. You know, I don't just, just a quick one. You know, I, I want to give you as much detail as we can. So hopefully as we go along the steps, you will see the connections with the New Testament and some of the scriptures. The second stage was called the, the betrothal ceremony, or kind of like in our language, the engagement ceremony, right? So once all both parties agree, they will sign to the contract, the ketubah, they will move on. And just before the signing, there was a kind of like a small celebration. What would happen before that the future bride and, future, and the future groom, they would kind of participate first in like a ceremonial baptism. The just immerse themselves in the water, symbolizing purity as they were coming out of the water. And after all of this, all this ceremony, right, when they would sign the contract and everything, what would happen later on? The future, the future husband would hold a glass of wine, filled with wine, and he will give it to his future wife. She will, she will drink this wine if she would accept all of this, all of this in the contract. She will take a sip of this cup and pass it back to him. And he will drink it. It will finish the glass. That's how the contract, so to speak, was finalized. So that was the first stage. I mean, the second stage, the engagement ceremony. After all of this, the two couples, the couples were legally married already. They were legally married already, even though they couldn't live together yet. So they all returned to their own homes. The young man returned to his father's home. The bride would stay home. And they would wait whatever was, you know, whatever price was there in the contract that the young man had to raise to pay for the bride. He was busy doing his work. And bride was also busy doing, doing you know, her work. So if anything happened during this stage, if let's say they want to be separated for whatever reasons, it was considered as a marriage. It had to go through the legal process, like any other marriage. So now we move to the next stage, the preparation period. So that's just the beginning of the Jewish wedding. Now we go through the preparation period. So during the preparation period, as I said, they will all be separated. They all would live under their father's roof, both of them. Now, the groom would be very busy because he will, help, he will have to prepare a place for his future wife. So he'll have to be busy. You know, usually at that time when, you know, most of the families were living in rural area, they would kind of like build an extension to the existing home of the father's home. They build a little extension to welcome their wives. And father would always watch it very closely how well his son is doing all of the preparation. At the same time, he would have to pay. It was a contract. He would have to purchase a bride. He would have to raise the money for his future bride. So whatever amount of time it was, everything needed to be ready before the actual wedding ceremony would take place. And as groom was busy at the time, also the, the bride was very busy doing her own stuff. So... First thing, the bride, she was observed for her purity. Everybody knew in the town, the contract was already signed, she's already married. Everybody would watch her 
So every time she would walk to the town, from now on, she would have to put a veil on her face. And everybody would know that this lady is taken. And this period would usually, preparation time, would at least, at least would last over nine months. Just to make sure that the future bride is not pregnant. In many, case, in many cases, the preparation time was longer than nine months. If there was some financial price, was high financial price that father requests for, you know, for his future husband to pay for it. Some men, when they were in love, like, you know, like, remember the story of Jacob? He worked seven years just to have the right to his wife. So that's what happened back then. But usually, it was more just ten months. That was the average preparation time. So, what else the bride was doing? And also at the same time, the bride was trying to consecrate herself, meaning get herself ready for a new life. So she was engaged in a discussion with her mom, with the older women, how to, how to live in a marriage relationship. What is she supposed to do? Put the child things away. Don't think like a child anymore. Just think as a future wife. And that would take some time. And the most important thing what bride would be doing at the same time was preparing her own wedding dress. It's not like today we just go to store and we pay thousands of dollars and, you know, the only thing is just to find a perfect match. Back then, ladies had to work very hard, very hard, trying to work and prepare her wedding garments. And that took many, many months of work. So that would be the... That would be the the preparation period. So as the broom would, as the future broom would work on his, you know, place to live for his future wife, as his work would come to a close, the father would watch him very closely, and usually the young man would come probably every week to his father. Are we ready? Are we ready? Am I ready? Am I ready? Can I go? Can I go? Can I go? Please let me go. Father would say, yeah, just wait, just wait. You know, what about the window? What about the door? What about the floor? It's not fully, you know, we don't want to embarrass when you want to bring your own wife. Just make sure everything is perfect, right? So was, everything was in father's hands. When he would let him actually, let him go and, 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 and tell him, just go and bring your wife home. So, so now we're moving to the next stage, stage four, which is called the wedding ceremony. So the ceremony, the wedding ceremony was a total surprise to both of the parties. To the groom and to the bride. Nobody knew the date. Nobody knew the week. Nobody had full understanding when it could happen. It, always, it was always in father's hands, both father's hands, when the other wedding ceremony would actually take place. So once the father would say to his son, man, I think you're mature. I think you have all the financial resources. You know, I think you build, build your place. Go. Try to get your wife. So as soon as he would go there, he would talk to the to his future father-in-law and says, you know, I'm ready. That's what I promised in my contract, the money, all the financial obligations right here. Now I need to consecrate, consummate this wedding. I need your, I, I, I'm asking for your daughter. So the father of the, of the bride would say that date when they actually can do that. So in a Jewish tradition, when all this happened, and that was amazing, like, when they described, usually the, usually the young man would come for his future wife, usually would come at night. So he would travel with his companion, with his best close friends, 
it would travel with his companions. And at the same time, the bride was watching too because she doesn't want to be shocked and surprised that she's not ready. So her friend would also watch through the night just to make sure that, you know, everything is in order. Everybody knew what is my dress, how to get, you know, if I need to dress quickly, what it is. Everything is ready. Everything is, it is prepared and waiting for the, for the right moment. So as they would come to the place, the father would set, you know, and the Jewish probably heard about the word chupa. I don't know if you heard it, but, you know, it's a different meaning today for Jewish people than it used to have in a biblical time. But we get to, we'll get to this a little bit later. But basically, the couple would enter to this chupa room where they will consummate the marriage. Basically, they will have a sexual relationship together at this time. And while all these things were happening, there was already kind of like a feasting going on outside but the newly bred, newly couple would just enter this room, and basically they would have a sexual relationship. At the end of it, the, the groom would come with the, I know it's not going to sound, you know, like today's society, it's not going to sound so great, but that's how it used to be back then, right? The girl needs to be virgin. When he came out of this room, he was holding in his hand the proof of virginity. It was basically a piece of cloth that was probably two feet by two feet. And if this piece of cloth would in blood, that we handle, he would handle it to the father of the bride and would hold to this cloth for a long time, just in case in somebody in the future or his husband would accuse his daughter that she was not virgin during, during the wedding. So that was the proof of virginity back then, right? So he would hold that. So after all of this thing, during this wedding ceremony, they would have, a, they would have another, you know, they would prom- the vows, they would promise each other faithfulness and love to each other. And all the companions would travel back to the young man's house that he built for the rest of the, for the, rest of the wedding, wedding feast. So that would lead us to the next stage, which is called the wedding feast. And once they would get there, they would start the same thing. They would repeat the vows, and they would share again the cup of wine in the same order that has happened exactly before. We'll get this a little bit later at the end. And when we come to wedding today, when was the longest wedding that you ever attended? Can you remember? The longest wedding that you could ever attend in your life. How long it was? I remember some weddings. When my sister got married in Poland, the wedding lasted about three days. Altogether, three days. The Jewish wedding feast last for seven days. For seven days. Seven days full of joy, music, great food, and everything. And I think with, we are in our society here, when everything is, you know, oriented just, you know, we're going the wrong way. We never have time for everything. But that was a great time back then, to imagine, just to celebrate, just to turn a little bit away from this world and to celebrate that new people joining for a new life and seven days of great festivity and all of this. And as they will come in, the first day of the feast, they will, have the vine, the, 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 they will drink the vine and, you know, the vows. They would spend seven glorious days together in this beautiful room that the young man built for his wife. And at the end of the seven days, his beautiful bride will be nicely dressed in all these wedding garments and no veils. And she will be presented 
all guests that were present during this feast. And everybody would just admire and look at the bride and give all the compliments to the groom. So that was the last day of the feast. So from this moment, from the last day of the feast, from this moment on, they would never ever be separated. They would be always, always together. So as we went through all the stages, you can see already some scriptures coming to your mind from the New Testament that Jesus Christ said, that Paul said, that Peter said, that would perfectly fit into the Jewish customs of wedding, right? But let me give you some example from the Old Testament first before we move to the new ones, okay? Let me give you from example of, of, of Abraham and Isaac. If you open your Bible to Genesis chapter 24, And as we're going to read through the scriptures, think about the stages that we just mentioned here. Genesis chapter 24 and verse 1. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. So Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house, who ruled over all that he had, he said, Please, put your hand under my tithe, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among, among whom, to, whom I dwell. Verse 4. But you shall go to my country and to my family and take a wife for my son Isaac. And their servant said to him, Perhaps the woman will not be with, willing to follow me. But you can see the arrangement of marriage is already starting here. He's giving the instruction to his most trusted servants, which is also a custom back then, in, you know, in a, in a Jewish in a Jewish culture. Somebody very trusted would go and try to arrange a marriage for his son. Now if you just skip to verse 20, 33. So this servant, is, he's, he's, he arrived there to the position. And you know, he met, Rebecca, he met Rebecca already. And they're saying, you know, tell us what happened. But before he tells all the stories, he needs to put the business on the table, right? So he says in verse 33. Food was set before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I have told about my, my, my errand and said, speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant, and the Lord has blessed my master greatly, and he has become great, and has given me flocks and herds and silver and all of these things. He's putting the contract on the table. He's proposing. He says, I'm here for this reason. My master told me to this, this, and this, and this. And he says, how rich he is, how you know, blessed he is, how much wonder things he got into his possession. So he's proposing a contract now, right? As we move on to verse 57, now Rebecca came out. So they're asking the Rebecca, right, if, she's, if she would willing to do that. And in verse 57, she's, so they said, we will call the young woman and ask her personally. Then they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. So they sent away Rebecca, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his man. So she basically approved what the contract says, that she's, she's willing to be a wife of somebody she doesn't even know. Arranged marriage, right? And then, in verse 64, you see when Rebecca came home to, to Isaac town, in verse 64, it says that Rebecca lifted her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from her camel, for she had, for, for she had said to her servant, Who is this man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, it is my master. So she took a veil and covered herself. 
And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. And Isaac brought her into his, mother's, into his mother Sarah's tent, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife. So basically, many marriages, as you go through the Bibles, they, they all go through the same similar system we just mentioned, through all the stages that, are, that we just mentioned there, right? So let's go again, and you know, it's too bad that I don't have the slides, so it will be much easier to look in all these different stages, but look some of the connections between Jesus Christ and his bride, in his church, and look at some connection you can find in the New Testament. So let's start with the arrangement of marriage, right? So as, as you can see from the scripture, and you know that I mentioned, that in ancient Israel, brides were usually chosen by the father of the bridegroom, or sometimes by the trusted servant, and most of the marriages were prearranged. If you open your Bible to John chapter 15, let me tell you that Whatever is happening to us, nothing happened by accident. Everything is arranged too by the Father who is in heaven. Okay? Look at John chapter 15 and verse 16. Jesus says to his disciple, he says in verse 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Christ chose them. Christ picked them before they actually had any say or, or, or to, to pick Christ, to choose Christ. Everything was arranged, so to speak. And one of the famous scriptures, you can go to John chapter 6 and verse 44. Most of you know what it is. John chapter 6 and verse 44, it says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me chose him. And I will raise him up at the last day. Everything is prearranged. It's not my choice to pick my husband. He just picked me before I had any say into it. I do have say. I can approve it, like, you know, like Rebecca did there. And I'll just give you one more. There are so many scriptures. We can't go through all of them. And, you know, you probably, some of them will come into your mind if you just want to write them down for yourself or share it later. But First Peter, First Peter chapter, First Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, and in verse 8, that's how Peter described. He says, in verse 8, cutting the, to the text, he says, Whom having not seen, you love. Though now we do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We don't see Jesus Christ. We don't know how he looked like. We know how he is. We have some descriptions of him. But we already love him. Just like prearranged marriage. Exactly the same thing. We follow the same pattern. And, you know, once we understand that, I forgot to mention at the beginning of the dance, once we understand the pattern, it's so much easier to understand not just the prophecy when Jesus Christ is going to come. You'll see at the end, as we read so many scriptures, we know exactly, we will know exactly at what stage we are right now in all this marriage celebration. And as you know, back then, in the Bible times, the brides were purchased. There was a price for it to pay. So when you look at us as a church, each of us was purchased. Each of us was purchased. If you go to First Peter chapter one, or well, we are in First Peter chapter one, verse 18, it says, Peter, he says, "Knowing that you were not redeemed." 
with corruptible things like silver or gold. For your, from, from your aimless conduct, received by traditions from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of, as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot. There is a price that Christ paid for us, for his church, as for his bride. It's a huge price. Just go back to Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now we go to Paul. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And in verse 23, Paul would write here to Corinthians the same thing. You were bought at a price. And because you were bought at a price, do not become slaves of other men. And just one more chapter to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And in verse 19, it says the same thing. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So you can see throughout the Bible, it's the same theme. And when you go to Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 5, and in verse 8, Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, but God demonstrated his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. So basically, before we met Christ, I'm going to use the terminology, we're spiritual harlots, so to speak. Not a single one of us was virgin. We're all guilty. We're all deserving of stoning, basically. And Christ, through his blood, he provided the virginity for us, basically, so to speak, right? So let's go to the second stage. So we see some scriptures to try to make sense when we would read them in a kind of like a Jewish wedding custom, right? Let's go to the engagement ceremony or the, the betrothal ceremony. See, we as a Christian, we also sign the contract. There's no any other way around. We sign the contract. What is our contract? What is our marriage contract? It's right here. That's the term of the contract. God's word, that's the term. And before you sign it, you better read it, and you better get yourself familiar with some of the words and some expectations that you have to have before you actually sign on the contract, okay? And as we, as we wait for Christ's return, we are in Romans, just go to chapter 6. And all this process, remember as I mentioned to you before that, before they actually signed it, they participated in a ritual cleansing, like a ritual baptism, both, both of them. We go through the same process in Romans chapter, Romans chapter 6 and verse 3. Paul would say, or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, we were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him through baptism into death, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Baptists give us the opening, open the doors, give us the possibility to sign the wonderful marriage contract with Jesus Christ. 
I'll get to this a little bit later. And remember, as I said, at the end of the ceremony, when they're signing the contract, when they're accepting the contract, they were drinking, they were sharing the cup of wine with the, with the future groom, would give it to his future wife first, she would drink it first, and then she would give it back to her future husband. So let's open to the Luke, Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. And in verse 15, on the Passover night, when all the disciples were gathered here with Christ in the upper room, then he said to them, With fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And verse 17, then he took the cup and he gave thanks and he said, take this and divide it among yourself. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And just skip, to verse, skip down to verse 20. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. So the same wedding ceremony that was taking place back then. So when he was speaking to his disciples, they understood all of this, you know, wine and cup. They understood it in a Jewish context, in a Hebrew context, not in our context, in a Hebrew context, doing exactly what he was saying. If you just... Just go to Matthew chapter 26. Why he wouldn't drink it? There is a better explanation here. And Matthew, Matthew chapter 26. And in verse 29. 26 is in verse 29. On the same night he says, But I say to you, I will no drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. So we'll come to this a little, to these details a little bit later at the conclusion of my presentation. So we'll just leave it for now as it is. So and also mentioned I forgot to mention that at this stage that the, when they were leaving, departing to their own places, usually the future husband, you know, gave a nice, wonderful, expensive gift to his future wife. That was the custom, or both of them sometimes exchange a valuable gift at this stage. So when Christ was leaving us, when Christ was leaving his disciple, when he went to his father, he also gave us a very valuable, very expensive gift. A gift that you cannot even buy with your own money. It doesn't matter how rich you are. If you go to John chapter 14, you know where I'm going to go with this. John chapter 14, and in verse 16, John chapter 14, And in verse 16, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither see him, sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will, be, and will be in you. So the same thing as the young people were separated, they were holding to these gifts, and they were just looking at it and holding and treasuring it, and just waiting for the moment, they could go to one day when they could be together. So the same Jesus Christ gave us a wonderful gift in a, in a gift of a helper who will be with us, who will remind us about all the promises that we have in this contract. 
that we signed with Jesus Christ. And now we move to the third stage, the preparation period. So as we read, as, we, as I gave you the, the preparation period, as I, as I told you that the young man would leave after the ceremony, he would go home to his father, he would go to his father and prepare, and prepare a, pray, a place for his future wife. So John chapter 14, we are right there. And look what happened here at verse 1. When Christ was talking to his disciples, he's using the same language. He says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe in me. He says, in my father's home, house, are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. See, he's going to prepare a place for us. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So the same, you know, people make so many different uh, doctrine based on the scriptures, but we would just read it in the context of a Jewish wedding. You would know exactly what Christ was saying to his disciples, right? He's going away, but he's coming back. That's just the part of the process we have to go through. As we all know, we all understand what this process is all about. Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9 and verse 15. It's just the one verse here. Matthew chapter 9 and in verse 15. And Jesus said to them, just keep the Jewish custom wedding, right? And he's in, 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 your, in, the, in your mind, in your, just look at all these perspectives I share with you. And he says in verse 15, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and they will fast. Now is the time for fasting because we are waiting for our, for, our, for our groom just to come, for his second coming. Look to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25. That's the part of the scripture the pastor agent covered a few weeks back. He's Great sermon about marriage. Husband, verse 25. Love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he may sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he may present her to himself a glorious church, not having a spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So that's we as a bride, that's what we're supposed to do as a church. It's a preparation time. We should be busy. We should be working on our cleansing. We should be working on our preparation to get serious, put the childish things away. And especially, we should be working on our, on our wedding garments. And we'll come to this a little bit later. So, and this separation period, as I said, at least lasted nine to ten months back then. That was the average wait. Can you imagine for a man and for a for a, for, a, for, a, for a boy and for a, for a girl to wait such a long time, not seeing each other, just waiting, all the expectations, right? When this moment's going to come? They don't know the day, they don't know the hour, but they're waiting and know it's going to happen. And, you know, future bride is praying, hopefully, that, you know, her future husband will ever come back. You know, she's counting the days, she's counting the weeks, she's counting the months, you know, holding in her heart that her husband, future husband, will come and take her. 
And you know, the same thing happened with us as a church. And it's a difficult process. This preparation process is the, is the process that we have to work the most. We have to work the hardest. And as the results, we can see it. Many Christians give up. They said, it's been so long. You know, it's been 2,000 years. Christ is not coming. What is he going to be? When he's going to come? Many people just give up. If you go to, if you go to Peter, Second Peter chapter 2, that's exactly what Peter was writing back then. Second Peter, Second Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. And here in verse 3, Peter would write, Knowing this first, that scoofers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lust, and saying, Oh, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. So there are many Christians. There are many Christians who say now that, you know, the second coming of Christ, that's just a symbolism. He's not going to really come here for a second time. The changing and, you know, and shifting the teaching into the other directions. We just give up on it. We sick and tired of waiting and preparing. So, as I said, we should be busy preparing our wedding garments. And back then it took months. It took months for our ladies to prepare a nice dress to wear for their own wedding. And, you know, we'll be doing something, we'll be doing something, we should be doing the same thing. What's the wedding garment? If you go to Revelation chapter 19, that's part of the, that Andrew read it today, but Revelation, part, Revelation chapter 19, and in verse 8, it says, And to her, the church, it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. That's what the church was created for, to do the righteous act. And the last scripture for this segment, if you go to Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, church was created for something, not just to walk around and have fun, but church was creating to do some work. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, Paul would say, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is the gift of God. Verse 9, not of words, leave anyone who should boast. And verse 10 is very important. For we are his workmanship, created in Jesus Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There is a lot of work that we as a church we should be doing, we should be accomplishing. All right, let's move to the wedding ceremony itself. So as I mentioned that in Jewish traditions, most often, you know, the future, the future groom would come for his bride at night and they were not aware of the date or the hour, so both of them have to be on kind of like a waiting for any signals that will happen. And when the man would walk with his friends to pick up his newly wife, one of them would sound a shofar or a trumpet just to announce that they're coming. You know? So you get ready on the other side. We are coming to pick you up. Let's go to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. Since you now have a better understanding about the Jewish custom, about the Jewish wedding, Matthew, Matthew chapter 25 and verse 1. 
Matthew chapter 25 verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be, shall be linked to ten virgins who took their lambs and went out to meet the bridegroom. So we know, we know that a little bit. We know the context here, right? What's happening? They were supposed to be on lookout and watch when the young man will come when he was on the shofar. So, you know, usually they have everything ready. They should have everything ready, everything prepared. Now, five of them were wise and five of them were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, a cry was heard. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. So when Christ is telling the story, this parable, they knew exactly what he was saying. They could relate to something that they experienced many times on many occasions during most of the weddings. Then all those virgins aroused and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the, but the wise answered, saying, No, there should be not enough for us and you. But go rather to those who sell and buy for yourself. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. That was the normal proceeding. They come, they will consummate the marriage now. But the other ones were looking for the lamps, they were looking for the oil. After the other virgin came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Surely I say to you, I do not know you. How can I know you? How can I know that you belong to this wedding family? I don't know. We're supposed to be here. We're not here. Now we're knocking on the door. I don't know you. They shut the door. And he says, Watch therefore, for you not know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. So the same thing we all experience. We don't know the day. We don't know the hour. We're waiting for the Father's signal that he will give to his Son. When he finally will say, Son, go and get your bride. We're waiting for that moment. For this wedding ceremony to begin. And you know, as Christ, hopefully as Christ comes, he will find some faith here on this earth, especially among, you know, us, about his people. So, open your Bible to Second, Second Corinthians chapter 11. Second Corinthians chapter 11. <clears throat> Second Corinthians chapter 11. Again, go back to Paul. Paul would write to the Corinthians, Second Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2, he would say, For I'm jealous for you Corinthians with godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, least somehow, as the serpent deceived by his craftiness, so you might, might be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. So they had the same problem back then as we have, the same problem here today among the Christianities. And you can see here that Paul relates to wedding ceremony. He says, you know, I engage you. I engage you to this Christ. And you know, we should understand the contract. You should understand the validity of the contract. And, the Jews, and you're doing everything exactly. You're doing everything opposite what you actually signed to. So that was what Paul was saying. And, you know, this cleanness, this portion of virginity, was, you know, was very important in the biblical time. And today in our society, if I, would, if I would ask young ladies or young men, how important is virginity to you? How important is it for you? Would you like to get married, let's say, if you're a boy? Would you like to get married a lady who, let's say, would tell you, uh, just before you had 16 different partners, how would you feel? 
Or, you know, you lady getting a man, and the man says, you know, I can't even count it. I had so many ladies before you. How would you feel about it? How important is this to you? It was very important to me. When I was getting married, it was very important to me. And, you know, imagine if you guys getting married, okay? Just go back 2,000 years to the same room. You guys getting married, you know, you have your nine best friends. You know, your husband got nine best friends. You go to consummate the marriage. And there is nothing. There is nothing on this cloth. There is no blood. So the husband will come with this thing and show to father what happened to the daughter. From the greatest celebration ever, you know what happened? They'll be stoned to death. That was the penalty. That's how value was virginity back then. That's how virginity was value to God back then and it is today. And as you look around, it's not a value anymore. It's for sale. It's for sale. It's just for taking. People are actually ashamed of it. Young people are actually ashamed of it when they grow to some age. And why I'm telling you this, you know, I was looking at some of the statistics here in North America. 75% of unmarried people under 20, 75% have sexual relationships with multiple partners. 75%. And it says here that one in four of this will get one form or the other of some sexually transmitted diseases. One in four. One in four. You see, of all the education that we have in this society, okay, just Mr. Google and all the other stuff, one in four will get sick in some kind of a sexually transmitted disease. Just think about it. How much of value is virginity for you? Just think about it. Because let me tell you, it's a very high value in God's sight. Very high value in God's sight. Both, not just for ladies, but also for men. And you know, back then, I read some statistics. I don't know how they can prove it. How would they were able, some scholars, to prove it? They said that in Israel, 99% of women were virgin. 99% of women were virgin. I don't know how they could prove it, but that's what they said. It's a great statistic. And if you want to read it about stoning a bride or any wife, look at Deuteronomy chapter 22, the whole chapter. Holding this proof of, you know, virginity by the father was something very important. was something to be proud of for father, for the whole family. So we don't know when the Christ is going to come. We don't know day. We don't know the hour. Let's go to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 27. 24:36 first. When Christ says in Matthew, he says, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. 
But once God the Father will give go ahead to his son Jesus Christ, go and get for his bride, everybody will hear it. Everybody will see it. And that's what it says in Matthew 24 and verse 27. It says, For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man be. So that's how wonderful, that's how great it be one day. And one of the famous scriptures that we use for the Feast of Trumpet in First Thessalonians chapter 4, which we all know it, but let's just read it again. First Thessalonians chapter 4 and in verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the cloud to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord from this point on. What a wonderful promise. What a wonderful thing. And for the last step, the wedding feast, as we know, as Christ will return, there will be a great feast for all of us. And as we know that the biblical feast lasted seven days. When, the Christ, when Christ comes back here, when we go to the Feast of Tabernacle, the Feast of Tabernacle lasted how long? Seven days. And it just fits so perfectly into all the scenarios, into God's holiday plans, into the you know, biblical model of, 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 of wedding and everything. And just go to Revelation chapter 19. That's the scripture that Angel read it today. But read it from a different perspective, from a different angle. From a better understanding, Revelation chapter 19, and in verse 7 it says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is righteous act of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are a true saying of God. So brethren, all the scriptures, all the promises are so, so wonderful. And just like the ancient Jewish wedding, as we know, we try to put all this knowledge into the perspective of prophecy. We're just not waiting. We're on the countdown. That's why Christ says, I don't know the time. I don't know the, the day when the Father was, let me go. I wish I could go right now. I wish I could go today just to be joined with my bride, but I have to wait. So, in conclusion, brethren, just go back to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 29. We read the scriptures today, but let's conclude with this one. Matthew chapter 26. And in verse 29. For I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew. In my father's kingdom. Why did not Christ drink it back then? Let me tell you why. Let me demonstrate why. The father of the man, when they were negotiating the contract, at the end of it, when they kind of like agreed to it, he would pour a wine to a glass and he would pass the glass to his son his son would take the glass with this wine. He will pass to his future wife. You know what he would say? 
this is my covenant, my blood. And I promise you that from day on on, I will love you, I will cherish you. And you know, all these vows that he pronounced. And when I read that thing, my hair just stood up. I was so excited. That's exactly what Christ did during the Passover ceremony. He says, take it, drink it. This is, my, this, is, this, is, this is my cup in my new covenant. Just drink it. Why did he not drink it? Because the young lady, she would drink it. She would pass it to the young man. And she would drink. He would drink it. And I want the contract would be sealed. You know why? Because if Christ would drink back then, and it would delimit the number of the recipients of this beautiful covenant just to the apostle. That's why he said, I will not drink it till I'll see you again in the kingdom. Because you know what? There is place for me, there is place for you, and there is place for all of us. But when he comes second times, if you're not ready, if he's going to get these glasses too late then, you can have it again. So, I just want you, as we come closer to the Passover, as we will participate in this beautiful, wonderful ceremony, okay? It's not just the ceremony. And you know, sometimes we wonder what is Baptist. Baptist just opened to us the door for this cup of blood. That's what it is. Without Baptist, you can participate in this. Why do you drink it? You're pointing, you're signing your name to the contract that it says, whatever it says here, I will do. And it's legal from that day that you participate in the first Passover. That's when you become legal. So brethren, Passover is just around the corner. Pastor Agent mentioned in his prayer, 55 days away. Get yourself ready. Because what is ahead for us? What is happening outside here at this wall, but what is ahead for us? is something unimaginable, undescribable. When Christ will come with his angel for us, what a glory. What a day it will be. To all of you, may God bless you all. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.